This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Proclaimers, uh, I'm going to be a strong candidate for the catchiest song of all time. Uh, the only thing this particular version is missing is Peter Griffin. Am I right? Uh, that would really make it the bee's knees. I'll tell you, um, I have no idea what uh, what ideology I subscribe to politically. Absolutely none. If, I, if you ask me to sum up my political philosophy in a word, it would, or in a sentence, a thought, it would be that... I believe in democracy. I believe that voters should have more power. And if voters go to the trouble of enacting something, either through a popular referendum or through their democratically elected legislators who they're free to throw out every two years, that those laws should not be nullified by nine unelected judges in black robes that serve for life. Now, I've said this for years. I've said this when liberal legislation gets struck down. I've said this when conservative legislation gets struck down. And generally, I succeed only in getting both conservatives and liberals to scream at me. And that's why I'm really the guy that brings America together. I am the one person that conservatives and liberals can scream at with equal enthusiasm. Well, no less an authority than Theodore Roosevelt had a similar philosophy. And i got to tell you, I discovered this great column uh, a week or two ago in, um, uh, in American Affairs Journal. I've linked to it on my Facebook page. You can read it for yourself. It's brilliant uh, at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. It's a couple of years old, but it's more relevant now than ever. And we tracked down uh, the historian that wrote this, Logan Stagg East. He's an independent historian in New Orleans, Louisiana, and his recent work has dealt with the nature of constitutional politics during the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. And I'm thrilled uh, that we've got him uh, on the show this morning. Logan, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hi, Frank. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Logan, I, I've disclosed my biases to the yeah. the public. I try to let everybody, whether they're conservative or liberal, kind of guard themselves against any hidden agenda that a guest or a commentator might be trying to foist upon them. So just so people know, it doesn't matter to me either way, but what are your biases? What, are, what, what political ideology do you subscribe to? Yeah, well, thanks for asking, um, and, and I agree, too. Um, I, I am on the conservative end of the spectrum, uh, and you were right. I think you mentioned earlier that the article is kind of geared towards a conservative audience, and in 2020, that's who I thought uh, would be the relevant audience for what I was trying to say. But if you want to make God laugh, you know, tell him your plans. <laughs> and, and now, in a strange way, I think that the shoe's on the other foot. And and the reason I chose to write about a character like Theodore Roosevelt, who I think you've expressed admiration for in the past, and I certainly admire, is that 
He was a president who has broad appeal not only to conservatives but also to mm. liberals. He really is a president that belongs not to any one political philosophy but to the American people broadly. And so I am on the conservative end of the spectrum, but what we're going to talk about today I, I hope should appeal to anyone who believes in popular sovereignty. So is that what sparked your interest in studying and writing about Theodore Roosevelt and his bull moose candidacy, the fact that he was sort of uh, uh, someone that appealed across the political spectrum? Yes, and also because I thought he would be a provocative target for conservatives, because conservatives are today, and you know I'm speaking in broad terms, uh, they'll refer to Theodore Roosevelt as this sort of manly, charismatic character who wanted to reform and clean up society and shot animals and all that. And all of that's true. Um, but at the same time, he espoused a lot of ideas that would make many modern-day so-called conservatives uncomfortable, especially his views on democracy or the court system or things you would say. Um, but that goes for liberals as well. So I thought if I wanted to disrupt the conversation and mm. kind of check people's thoughts, he'd be a good good place to go. Now, uh, so if people aren't familiar uh, with the history of what had gone on in 1912, uh, Theodore Roosevelt had taken over for President McKinley, who was assassinated, finished McKinley's term, then in 1904 was reelected in his own right. In 1908, he's still probably the most popular guy in America. He endorses his uh, hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft, who gets elected in 1908, 1912, Theodore Roosevelt decides to come back and run again. He uh, tries to wrest the Republican nomination from his handpicked successor, and a guy that was a close friend of his, Taft, is not able to do it. He chooses to run third party, the Progressive Party, a.k.a. the Bull Moose Party. What was it in 1912, uh, specifically, Logan, uh, that precipitated Theodore Roosevelt's break from the GOP? Yeah, and, and there were a lot of things. Now, most coverages of the 1912 election will focus on the personal disagreements with Taft. They'll focus on a lot of progressive era reforms that Roosevelt thought he was the best to pass, and that Taft was incapable of passing them, and, and all of that's there. But an issue that was not is not as discussed heavily in the history books and that I wanted to bring attention to is the role of the Supreme Court in making decisions about what laws uh, – or rather making decisions about what laws should and shouldn't be struck down as being unconstitutional. And in the progressive era, in the early 1900s, what they were facing was the Supreme Court. It's called the, the Lochner era in jurisprudence, where the Supreme Court was striking down a lot of popular state laws um, because of the 14th Amendment, which we can discuss if you'd like, uh, that were regulating what businesses were doing. So, for instance, the Lochner decision actually comes out of New York State, uh, and it, it had tried to – the, the, it was called the Bake Shop Act. It had tried to restrict the working hours bakers were doing to try and prevent them from being overworked, and the Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional under the name of the freedom of the liberty of contract. And so what Roosevelt was saying was that, look, as reformers, we need to be able to pass laws to limit what businesses are doing because it's taking advantage of people. Uh, and the court is stopping us from doing it. It's, I think the quote I used was, it's making the Constitution a means of thwarting the people themselves. Um, something to that effect. So Theodore Roosevelt's unhappy with a lot of the Supreme Court decisions striking down popular legislation in a lot of his early speeches. He makes this the defining issue that he differs from Taft on. Here's a little bit of Theodore Roosevelt campaigning in 1912. 
But there is grave discontent and unrest, and in order to remove them, there is need of all the wisdom and probity and deep-seated faith in and purpose to uplift humanity we have at our command. Friends, our task as Americans is to strive for social and industrial justice achieved through the genuine rule of the people. This is our end, our purpose. The methods for achieving the end are merely expedients to be finally accepted or rejected according as actual experience shows that they work well or ill. But in our hearts we must have this lofty purpose to strive for it in all earnestness and sincerity or our work will come to nothing. You write that Theodore Roosevelt made the popular Constitution and deferring to the people a big part of his campaign in 1912. What did he mean and what do you mean when you use that term popular Constitution? Thank you. Um, so one thing that we should consider, and this, this brings me to the core of the point, is whenever we ask ourselves, who is it that determines what is and isn't constitutional today? Pretty much everyone looks to the Supreme Court. That's that's all the debate really is about, is what are we going to get the justices to say up or down on an issue, which is why uh, judicial appointment hearings are so um, tumultuous today. But if you ask someone in the 1800s, you know, what is and isn't constitutional, they debate it. Uh, is a national bank constitutional? Is the Louisiana Purchase constitutional? Is having mail delivered on a Sunday or not on a Sunday constitutional? And the way they answered those questions then, uh, the same way, you know, when Thomas Jefferson was running against John Adams after the Alien Sedition Act is they voted. Uh, Andrew Jackson says that the National Bank is unconstitutional, so he runs for president, among other reasons. And when he's president, he vetoes uh, the bank renewal bill. And so they solve a problem that way. Increasingly, in the progressive era, you see the court trying to make more and more pronounced decisions uh, in the name of individual economic liberty, limiting popular decisions. And what Theodore Roosevelt was trying to say was, look, they're they're expanding what rights were granted in the 14th Amendment to proportions that were never intended by the actual 14th Amendment, which was a popular piece of legislation itself. Um, and, and that is also what I would say. We, we have come to rely on every interpretation that's coming from the court, and it's leading them to make decisions, whether it's personal liberty, say abortion rights, or economic liberty, freedom of contract. Uh, and not putting more of those debates in the public square uh, where really that kind of debate belongs. Uh, we're talking with Logan Stagg East. He's a historian in Louisiana, written a great piece. We're barely going to scratch the surface on it, but I want to encourage everyone to go to my Facebook page and read it, facebook.com slash moranofan. You use throughout your piece and uh, throughout a, a thesis, th- thesis that you wrote for graduate school a term that I use, judicial supremacy, Is there a difference in your view between judicial supremacy and judicial review? Yes. Okay. So judicial review is, you know, it's the term we all learn in civics. It's the power of the court to review laws, determine their meaning, and strike down a law that is deemed unconstitutional. And that basic power was proposed in the Federalist Papers way back, Alexander Hamilton, in the debate over ratifying the Constitution. And it's kind of implied in the in the responsibility of the Supreme Court to interpret laws. You know, if, for instance, we have a First Amendment right to free speech and 
the federal government tries to say you can't express your political speech, we would hope that the Supreme Court would strike that down as unconstitutional, and that's that's just judicial review. Um, but in the 1800s, there's kind of this ambiguous relationship. You know, the court can determine some parts of the laws, but a lot of those questions, you know, what is necessary and proper, the necessary and proper clause, is debated in the public square. And so we have sort of the popular uh, constitution, which is debated at the ballot, and then we have the the other half of the constitution decided on the bench at the court. Um, and today, what judicial supremacy is, is really the sort of admittance or the, the public belief that all final, all final constitutional questions ultimately are answered at the Supreme Court. And what Theodore Roosevelt proposed, he wasn't the only one, um, actually many Democrats and Republicans at the time were proposing reforms, was that there should be some kind of popular either recall of judges or recall of judicial decisions if a large enough body of the people disagreed with the decision. And so have some kind of a popular check in addition to the judicial check. What we have now is if the Supreme Court says that something is or isn't constitutional, that's just it. And what that results in is this sort of morbid death watch where, uh, you know, politicians wait. They don't admit it, but they wait for a justice to die. Um, and right. then we race to try and get our judges in. And, and that's not uh, – no one wants that to be how the Constitution is determined, I don't think. Logan, um, I wish we had more time. I only have about a minute left, but I'm hoping maybe we can continue this conversation one day next week. That's convenient sure. for you. But the conservatives in our audience, I want you to speak to your conservative brethren. They're feeling great about the Supreme Court these days. Right. They're striking down gun laws in New York that people don't like. They're undoing the Roe v. Wade decision. They're striking down EPA restrictions. Why should conservatives listening to this conversation want to change anything when they're enjoying the fruits of a conservative Supreme Court right now? <laughs> right. I would only say that um, two years ago, liberals could have felt that they were in the same position, and the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. If you believe that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter in what your rights are and not your neighbors and the people themselves, um, that's not what the Founding Fathers thought in 1776, right. and it's it's you could be in the same position two years from now, so I would warn them. Yeah, uh, Logan, Logan Stag East, I want to encourage everybody to read this piece, and again, I do hope we can continue this conversation one day next week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I want to warn you, I don't pretend to have Logan's expertise either as a constitutional scholar or a historian, but that's why you probably will have an easier time debating with me than you would with him. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 